Chapter Thirteen of the Rise of Silas Lapham by William Dean Howells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Having distinctly given up the project of asking the Laphams to dinner, Mrs. Coyer was able to carry it out with the courage of sinners who have sacrificed a virtue by frankly acknowledging its superiority to their intended transgression. She did not question but the Laphams would come and she only doubted as to the people whom she should invite to meet them. She opened the matter with some trepidation to her daughters, but neither of them opposed her. They rather looked at the scheme from her own point of view, and agreed with her that nothing had really yet been done to wipe out the obligation to the Laphams, helplessly contracted the summer before, and strengthened by that ill-advised application to Mrs. Lapham for charity. Not only the principle of their debt of gratitude remained, but the accruing interest. They said, what harm could giving the dinner possibly do them? They might ask any or all of their acquaintance without disadvantage to themselves. But it would be perfectly easy to give the dinner just the character they chose, and still flatter the ignorance of the Laphams. The trouble would be with Tom if he were really interested in the girl, but he could not say anything if they made it a family dinner. He could not feel anything. They had each turned in her own mind, as it appeared from a comparison of ideas, to one of the most comprehensive of those cousinships which form the admiration and terror of the adventurer in Boston society. He finds himself hemmed in and left out, at every turn, by ramifications that forbid him all hope of safe personality in his comments on people. He is nevertheless secure than when he hears some given Bostonian denouncing or ridiculing another. If he will be advised, he will guard himself from concurring in these criticisms, however just they appear, for the probability is that their object is a cousin of not more than one remove from the censor. When the alien hears a group of Boston ladies calling one another, and speaking of all their gentlemen friends, by the familiar abbreviations of their Christian names, he must feel keenly the exile to which he was born. But he is then, at least, in comparatively little danger, while these latent and tacit cousinships open pitfalls at every step around him, in a society where Middlesexes have married Essexes and produced Suffolks for two hundred and fifty years. These conditions, however, so perilous to the foreigner, are a source of strength and security to those native to them. An uncertain acquaintance may be so effectually involved in the meshes of such a cousinship, as never to be heard of outside of it, and tremendous stories are told, of people who have spent a whole winter in Boston, in a whirl of gaiety, and who, the original guests of the Suffolks, discover upon reflection that they have met no one but Essexes and Middlesexes. Mrs. Corey's brother James came first into her mind, and she thought, with uncommon toleration of the easy-going, uncritical, good nature of his wife. James Bellingham had been the adviser of her son throughout, and might be said to have actively promoted his connection with Lapham. She thought next of the widow of her cousin, Henry Bellingham, who had let her daughter marry that western steamboat man, and was fond of her son-in-law. She might be expected at least to endure the painting in his family. The daughters insisted so strongly upon Mrs. Bellingham's son Charles, that Mrs. Corey put him down, if he were in town. He might be in Central America, he got on with all sorts of people. It seemed to her that she might stop at this. Four Laphams, five Corries, and four Bellinghams were enough. "'That makes thirteen, said Nanny. "'You can have Mr. and Mrs. Seawall. 
"'Yes, that is a good idea,' assented Mrs. Corey. "'He is our minister, and it is very proper.' "'I don't see why you don't have Robert Chase. "'It is a pity he shouldn't see her, for the colour.' "'I don't quite like the idea of that,' said Mrs. Corey. "'But we can have him too, if it won't make too many.' "'The painter had married into a poorer branch of the Coreys, "'and his wife was dead. "'Is there anyone else?' "'There is Mrs. Kingsbury. "'We have had her so much, she will begin to think we are using her. "'She won't mind. She's so good-natured.' "'Well, then,' the mother summed up, "'there are four Laphams, five Corries, four Bellinghams, one Chase and one Kingsbury. Fifteen. Oh, and two Sewalls. Seventeen. Ten ladies and seven gentlemen. It doesn't balance very well, and it's too large.' "'Perhaps some of the ladies won't come,' suggested Lily. "'Oh, the ladies always come,' said Nanny. "'Their mother reflected. "'Well, I will ask them. "'The ladies will refuse in time to let us pick up some gentlemen somewhere, "'some more artists. "'Why, we must have Mr. Seymour, the architect. "'He's a bachelor, and he's building their new house,' Tom says.' "'Her voice fell a little when she mentioned her son's name.' and she told him of her plan, when he came home in the evening, with evident misgiving. "'What are you doing it for, mother?' he asked, looking at her with his honest eyes. She dropped her own in a little confusion. "'I won't do it at all, my dear,' she said, "'if you don't approve. "'But I thought—you know we have never made any proper acknowledgement of their kindness to us at Bay St. Paul. "'Then, in the winter—' I'm ashamed to say I got money from her for a charity I was interested in, and I hate the idea of merely using people that way. And now you're having been at their house this summer. We can't seem to disapprove of that, and your business relations to him. Yes, I see, said Corey. Do you think it amounts to a dinner? Why, I don't know, returned his mother. We shall have hardly anyone out of our family connection. Well, Corey assented, it might do. I suppose what you wish is to give them a pleasure. Why, certainly. Don't you think they'd like to come? Oh, they'd like to come, but whether it would be a pleasure after they were here is another thing. I should have said that if you wanted to have them, they would enjoy better being simply asked to meet our own immediate family. That's what I thought of in the first place, but your father seemed to think it implied a social distrust of them, and we couldn't afford to have that appearance even to ourselves. Perhaps he was right. And besides, it might seem a little significant. Corey seemed inattentive to this consideration. Whom do you think of asking? His mother repeated the names. Yes, that would do, he said, with a vague dissatisfaction. I won't have it at all if you don't wish, Tom. "'Oh, yes, have it. Perhaps you ought. "'Yes. I dare say it's right. "'What did you mean by a family dinner seeming significant?' "'His mother hesitated. "'When it came to that, she did not like to recognise in his presence "'the anxieties that had troubled her. "'But—' "'I don't know,' she said, since she must. "'I shouldn't want to give that young girl or her mother "'the idea that we wish to make more of the acquaintance than—' than you did, Tom. He looked at her absent-mindedly, as if he did not take her meaning, but he said, Oh, yes, 
of course. And Mrs. Corey, in the uncertainty in which she seemed destined to remain concerning this affair, went off and wrote her invitation to Mrs. Lapham. Later in the evening, when they again found themselves alone, her son said, "'I don't think I understood you, mother, in regard to the Laphams. "'I think I do now. "'I certainly don't wish you to make more of the acquaintance than I have done. "'It wouldn't be right. "'It might be very unfortunate. "'Don't give the dinner.' "'It's too late now, my son,' said Mrs. Corey. "'I sent my note to Mrs. Lapham an hour ago.' "'Her courage rose at the trouble which showed in Corey's face.' "'But don't be annoyed by it, Tom. "'It isn't a family dinner, you know, "'and everything can be managed without embarrassment. "'If we take up the affair at this point, "'you will seem to have been merely acting for us, "'and then they can't possibly understand anything more.' "'I dare say it's all right. "'At any rate, it can't be helped now.' "'I don't wish to help it, Tom,' said Mrs. Corey, "'with a cheerfulness which the thought of the Laphams "'had never brought her before. "'I'm sure it is quite fit and proper.' and we can make them have a very pleasant time. They are good, inoffensive people, and we owe it to ourselves not to be afraid to show that we have felt their kindness to us, and his appreciation of you. Well, consented Corey. The trouble that his mother had suddenly cast off was in his tone, but she was not sorry. It was quite time that he should think seriously of his attitude towards these people, if he had not thought of it before, but, according to his father's theory, had been merely dangling. It was a view of her son's character that could hardly have pleased her in different circumstances, yet it was now unquestionably a consolation, if not wholly a pleasure. If she considered the Laphams at all, it was with the resignation which we feel at the evils of others, even when they have not brought them on themselves. Mrs. Lapham, for her part, had spent the hours between Mrs. Corey's visit and her husband's coming home from business, in reaching the same conclusion with regard to Corey, and her spirits were at the lowest when they sat down to supper. Irene was downcast with her, Penelope was purposely gay, and the colonel was beginning, after his first plate of the boiled ham, which, bristling with cloves, rounded its bulk on a wire platter before him, to take note of the surrounding mood when the doorbell jingled peremptorily, and the girl left waiting on the table to go and answer it. She returned at once with a note for Mrs. Lapham, which she read, and then, after a helpless survey of her family, read again. "'Why, what is it, Mamma? asked Irene, while the Colonel, who had taken up his carving-knife for another attack on the ham, held it drawn half across it. "'Why, I don't know what it does mean,' answered Mrs. Lapham tremulously, and she let the girl take the note from her. Irene ran it over, and then turned to the name of the end with a joyful cry, and a flush that burned to the top of her forehead. Then she began to read it once more. The colonel dropped his knife and frowned impatiently, and Mrs. Lapham said, "'You read it out loud if you know what to make of it, Irene.' But Irene, with a nervous scream of protest, handed it to her father, who performed the office. "'Dear Mrs. Lapham, will you and General Lapham "'I didn't know I was a general,' grumbled Lapham. "'Guess I should have to be looking up my back pay. "'Who is it that writes this, anyway?' "'He asked, turning the letter over for the signature. "'Oh, never mind, read it through,' cried his wife, "'with a kindling glance of triumph at Penelope, "'and he resumed, "'And your daughters give us the pleasure of your company at dinner "'on Thursday the 28th, 
at half-past six. Yours sincerely, Anna B. Corey. The brief invitation had been spread over two pages, and the colonel had difficulties with the signature, which he did not instantly surmount. When he had made out the name and pronounced it, he looked across at his wife for an explanation. "'I don't know what it all means,' she said, shaking her head and speaking with a pleased flutter. "'She was here this afternoon, and I should have said she had come down to see how bad she could make us feel. I declare I never felt so put down in my life by anybody.' "'Why, what did she do? What did she say?' Lapham was ready, in his dense pride, to resent any affront to his blood, but doubtful with the evidence of this invitation to the contrary, if any affront had been offered. Mrs. Lapham tried to tell him, but there was really nothing tangible, and when she came to put it into words, she could not make out a case. Her husband listened to her excited attempt, and then he said, with judicial superiority, "'I guess nobody's been trying to make you feel bad, Persis. "'What would she go right home and invite you to dinner for "'if she acted the way you say?' "'In this view it did seem improbable, "'and Mrs. Lapham was shaken. "'She could only say, "'Penelope felt just the way I did about it.' "'Lapham looked at the girl, he said, "'Oh, I can't prove it. "'I begin to think it never happened. "'I guess it didn't.' Hm," said her father, and he sat frowning thoughtfully a while, ignoring her mocking irony, or choosing to take her seriously. "'You can't really put your finger on anything,' he said to his wife, "'and it ain't likely there is anything. Anyway, she's done the proper thing by you now.' Mrs. Lapham faltered between her lingering resentment and the appeals of her flattened vanity. She looked from Penelope's impassive face to the eager eyes of Irene. "'Well,' "'Just as you say, Silas. I don't know if she was so very bad. I guess maybe she was embarrassed some.' "'That's what I told you, Mamma, from the start,' interrupted Irene. "'Didn't I tell you she didn't mean anything by it? It's just the way she acted at Bay St. Paul when she got well enough to realise what you'd done for her.' Penelope broke into a laugh. "'Is that her way of showing gratitude? I'm sorry I didn't understand that before.' Irene made no effort to reply. She merely looked from her mother to her father with a grieved face for their protection, and Lapham said, "'When we've done supper, you answer her, Persis. Say we'll come.' "'With one exception,' said Penelope. "'What do you mean?' demanded her father with a mouthful of ham. "'Oh, nothing of importance. Merely that I'm not going.' Lapham gave himself time to swallow his morsel, and his rising wrath went down with it. "'I guess you'll change your mind when the time comes,' he said. "'Anyway, Persis, you say we'll all come, and then if Penelope doesn't want to go, you can excuse her after we get there. That's the best way.' None of them, apparently, saw any reason why the affair should not be left in this way, or had a sense of the awful and binding nature of a dinner engagement. If she believed that Penelope would not finally change her mind and go, no doubt Mrs. Lapham thought that Mrs. Corey would easily excuse her absence. She did not find it so simple a matter to accept the invitation. Mrs. Corey had said, Dear Mrs. Lapham, but Mrs. Lapham had her doubts whether it would not be a servile invitation to say, Dear Mrs. Corey, in return, and she was tormented as to the proper phrasing throughout, and the precise temperature which she should impart to her politeness. 
She wrote an unpractised, uncharacteristic round hand, the same in which she used to set the children's copies at school, and she subscribed herself, after some hesitation, between her husband's given name and her own. Yours truly, Mrs. S. Lapham. Penelope had gone to her room, without waiting to be asked to advise or criticise, but Irene had decided upon the paper, and on the whole Mrs. Lapham's note made a very decent appearance on the page. When the furnace man came, the colonel sent him out to post it in the box at the corner of the square. He had determined not to say anything more about the matter before the girls, not choosing to let them see that he was elated. He tried to give the effect of its being an everyday sort of thing, abruptly closing the discussion with his order to Mrs. Lapham to accept. But he had remained swelling behind his newspaper during her prolonged struggle with her note, and he could no longer hide his elation when Irene followed her sister upstairs. "'Well, Purse,' he demanded, "'what do you say now?' Mrs. Lapham had been sobered into something of a former misgiving by her difficulties with her note. "'Well, I don't know what to say. I declare I'm all mixed up about it, and I don't know as we've begun as we can carry out in promising to go. I presume,' she sighed, "'that we can all send some excuse at the last moment if we don't want to go.' "'I guess we can carry out, and I guess we shan't want to send any excuse,' bragged the Colonel. "'If we're ever going to be anybody at all, we've got to go and see how it's done. "'I presume we've got to give some sort of party when we get into the new house, "'and this gives the chance to ask him back again. "'You can't complain now but what they've made the advances, Persis.' "'No,' said Mrs. Lapham lifelessly. "'I wonder why they wanted to do it.' "'Oh, I suppose it's all right.' She added in deprecation of the anger, with her humility which she saw rising in her husband's face. But if it's all going to be as much trouble as that letter, I'd rather be whipped. I don't know what I'm going to wear, or the girls either. I do wonder. I've heard that people go to dinner in low necks. Do you suppose it's the custom? How should I know? demanded the Colonel. I guess you've got clothes enough. any rate, you needn't fret about it. You just go round to White's or Jordan the Marshes and ask for a dinner dress. I guess that'll settle it. They'll know. Get some of them imported dresses. I see em in the window every time I pass. Lots of em. Oh, it ain't the dress, said Mrs. Lapham. I don't suppose but what we could get along with that, and I want to do the best we can for the children. But I don't know what we're going to talk about to those people when we get there. We haven't got anything in common with them. Oh, I don't say they're any better she again made haste to say in arrest of her husband's resentment. I don't believe they are, and I don't see why they should be. And there ain't anybody has got a better right to hold up their head than you have, Silas. You've got plenty of money, and you've made every cent of it. I guess I shouldn't amounted to much without you, Persis, interposed Lapham, moved to this justice by her praise. Oh, don't talk about me, protested the wife. Now that you've made it all right about Rogers, there ain't a thing in this world against you. But still, for all that, I can see, and I can feel it when I can't see it, that we're different from those people. They're well-meaning enough, and they'd excuse it, I presume, but we're too old to learn to be like them. The children ain't, said Lapham shrewdly. No, the children ain't, admitted his wife, and that's the only thing that reconciles me to it. You see how pleased Irene looked when I read it? Yes, 
She was pleased. And I guess Penelope will think better of it before the time comes. Oh, yes, we do it for them, but whether we're doing the best thing for him, goodness knows. I'm not saying anything against him. Irene will be a lucky girl to get him if she wants him. But there, I'd ten times rather she was going to marry such a fellow as you were, Si, that had to make every inch of his own way, and she had to help him. It's in her. Lapham laughed aloud for pleasure in his wife's fondness, but neither of them wished that he should respond directly to it. I guess, if it weren't for me, he wouldn't have a much easier time. But don't you fret. It's all coming out right. That dinner ain't a thing for you to be uneasy about. It'll pass off perfectly easy and natural. Lapham did not keep his courageous mind quite to the end of the week that followed. It was his theory not to let Corey see that he was set up about the invitation, and when the young man said politely that his mother was glad they were able to come, Lapham was very short with him. He said yes, he believed that Mrs. Lapham and the girls were going. Afterward, he was afraid Corey might not understand that he was coming too, but he did not know how to approach the subject again, and Corey did not, so he let it pass. It worried him to see all the preparation that his wife and Irene were making, and he tried to laugh at them for it, and it worried him to find that Penelope was making no preparation at all for herself, but only helping the others. He asked her what she should do if she changed her mind at the last moment and concluded to go, and she said she guessed she should not change her mind, but if she did, she would go to White's with him and get him to choose her an imported dress. He seemed to like them so much. He was too proud to mention the subject again to her. Finally, all the dressmaking in the house began to scare him with vague apprehensions in regard to his own dress. As soon as he had determined to go, an ideal of the figure in which he should go presented itself to his mind. He should not wear any dress coat, because, for one thing, he considered that a man looked like a fool in a dress coat, and, for another thing, he had none, had none on principle. He would go in a frock coat and black pantaloons, and perhaps a white waistcoat, but a black cravat, anyway. But as soon as he developed this ideal to his family, which he did in pompous disdain of their anxieties about their own dress, they said he should not go so. Irene reminded him that he was the only person without a dress coat at a core reunion dinner which he had taken her to some years before, and she remembered feeling awfully about it at the time. Mrs. Lapham, who would perhaps have agreed of herself, shook her head with misgiving. "'I don't see but what you have to get one, Si,' she said. "'I don't believe they ever go without him to a private house.' He held out openly, but on his way home the next day, in a sudden panic, he cast anchor before his tailor's door and got measured for a dress coat. After that, he began to be afflicted about his waistcoat, concerning which he had hitherto been airily indifferent. He tried to get opinion out of his family, but they were not so clear about it as they were about the frock. It ended in their buying a book of etiquette, which settled the question adversely to a white waistcoat. The author, however, after being very explicit in telling them not to eat with their knives, and above all, not to pick their teeth with their forks, a thing which he said no lady or gentleman ever did, was still far from decided as to the kind of cravat Colonel Lapham ought to wear. Shaken on other points, Lapham had begun to waver also concerning the black cravat. As to the question of gloves for the Colonel, which suddenly flashed upon him one evening, 
It appeared never to have entered the thoughts of the etiquette man, as Lapham called him. Other authors on the same subject were equally silent, and Irene could only remember having heard, in some vague sort of way, that gentlemen did not wear gloves so much any more. Drops of perspiration gathered on Lapham's forehead in the anxiety of the debate. He groaned, and he swore a little in the compromised profanity which he used. "'I declare,' said Penelope, where she sat blindly sewing on a bit of dress for Irene, "'the Colonel's clothes are as much trouble as anybody's. Why don't you go to Jordan and Marsh's and order one of the imported dresses for yourself, father?' That gave them all the relief of a laugh over it, the Colonel joining in piteously. He had an awful longing to find out from Corrie how he ought to go. He formulated and repeated over to himself an apparently careless question such as, "'Oh, by the way, Corrie, where do you get your gloves?' This would naturally lead to some talk on the subject, which would, if properly managed, clear up the whole trouble. But Lapham found that he would rather die than ask this question, or any question that would bring up the dinner again. Corrie did not recur to it, and Lapham avoided the matter with positive fierceness. He shunned talking with Corrie at all, and suffered in grim silence. One night, before they fell asleep, his wife said to him, "'I was reading in one of those books today, and I don't believe but what we've made a mistake if Pen holds out that she won't go.' "'Why?' demanded Lapham, in the dismay which beset him at every fresh recurrence of the subject." The book says that it's very impolite not to answer a dinner invitation promptly. Well, we've done that all right. At first I didn't know but what we had been a little too quick. Maybe. But then it says, if you're not going, then it's the height of rudeness not to let them know at once, so they can fill your place at the table. The colonel was silent for a while. Well, I'm dumbed, he said finally. If there seems to be any end to this thing... If I was to do it over, I'd say no for all of us. I've wished a hundred times they hadn't asked us, but it's too late to think about that now. The question is, what are we going to do about Penelope? Ah, oh, well, I guess she'll go at the last moment. She says she won't. She took a prejudice against Mrs. Corey that day, and she can't seem to go over it. Well, then, hadn't you better write in the morning as soon as you're up that she ain't coming? Mrs. Lapham sighed helplessly. "'I shouldn't know how to get it in. It's so late now, I don't see how I could have the face.' "'Well, then, she's got to go, that's all.' "'She's set that she won't.' "'And I'm set that she shall,' said Lapham, with the loud obstinacy of a man whose women always have their way. Mrs. Lapham was not supported by the sturdiness of his proclamation." but she did not know how to do what she knew she ought to do about Penelope, and she let matters drift. After all, the child had a right to stay at home if she did not wish to go. That was what Mrs. Lapham felt, and when she said to her husband the next morning, bidding him let Penelope alone, unless she chose herself to go. She said it was too late now to do anything, and she must make the best excuse she could when she saw Mrs. Corey. She began to wish that Irene and her father would go and excuse her, too. She could not help saying this, and then she and Lapham had some unpleasant words. "'Look here,' he cried. "'Who wanted to go in for these people in the first place? Didn't you come home full of them last year, 
and want me to sell out here and move somewhere else because it didn't seem to suit him. And now you want to put it all on me. I ain't going to stand it. Hush, said his wife. Do you want to raise the house? I didn't put it on you, as you say. You took it on yourself. Ever since that fellow happened to come into the new house that day, you've been perfectly crazy to get in with him. And now you're so afraid you should do something wrong before him, you don't hardly dare to say your life's your own. I declare, if you pester me any more about those gloves, Silas Lapham, I won't go. Do you suppose I want to go on my own account? he demanded furiously. No, she admitted. Of course I don't. I know very well that you're doing it for Irene. But for goodness gracious's sake, don't worry our lives out and make yourself a perfect laughing-stock before the children. With this modified concession from her, the quarrel closed in sullen silence on Lapham's part. The night before the dinner came, and the question of his gloves was still unsettled, and in a fair way to remain so. He had bought a pair so as to be on the safe side, perspiring in company with the young lady who sold them, and who helped him try them on at the shop. His nerves were still full of the powder which she had plentifully peppered into them in order to overcome the resistance of his blunt fingers. But he was uncertain whether he should wear them. They had found a book at last that said the ladies removed their gloves on sitting down at the table, but it said nothing about gentlemen's gloves. He left his wife where she stood, half hook and eyed at her glass in her new dress, and went down to his own den beyond the parlour. Before he shut his door, he caught a glimpse of Irene trailing up and down before the long mirror in her new dress, followed by the seamstress on her knees. The woman had her mouth full of pins, and from time to time she made Irene stop till she could put one of the pins into her train. Penelope sat in a corner criticising and counselling. It made Lapham sick, and he despised himself and all his brood for the trouble they were taking. But another glance gave him a sight of the young girl's face in the mirror, beautiful and radiant with happiness, and his heart melted again with paternal tenderness and pride. It was going to be a great pleasure to Irene, and Lapham felt that she was bound to cut out anything there. He was vexed with Penelope that she was not going too. He would have liked to have those people hear her talk. He held his door a little open, and listened to the things she was getting off there to Irene. He showed that he felt really hurt and disappointed about Penelope, and the girl's mother made her console him the next evening, before they all drove away without her. "'You try to look on the bright side of it, father. I guess you'll see that it's the best I didn't go when you get there. Irene needn't open her lips, and they can all see how pretty she is, but they won't know how smart I was unless I talked, and maybe then they wouldn't.' This thrust at her father's simple vanity in her made him laugh, and they drove away, and Penelope shut the door, and went upstairs with her lips firmly shutting in a sob. End of chapter 13